1: Everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today with me, I have Sergio Chico. Did I say it right? Chico. Chi Chico. Okay, yeah. I knew. I told you. I knew that I was going to say it wrong. Uh, chi, Cone, um uh, right. With us today, and you are a personal trainer and stand-up comic. Correct. Right. Yes. Okay, I heard somebody say one time that they were um, a stand-up comic and they did shows, which meant they were unemployed and did comedy on the side. Right. <laughs> it it kind of seems to be that way sometimes.
0: Right, right, right. That makes sense. But, you know, I, I am fortunate that I am able to um, make a living out of two things I really enjoy. Those are my passions, and it is kind of uh, to be uh, – something I can make a living doing. So I'm very fortunate and grateful for that. You know,
1: it's always fulfilling when we can do something that we truly enjoy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It it also feels like I'm at service to others, which is nice. You know, It feels like I'm giving back. That's nice as well.
1: So tell me a little bit, where were you born and, and what was life growing up as a child?
0: I was born in New York city, lower East side, Manhattan from the age of, one through 10, I grew up in uh, in the projects in Baruch, single mom with my sister. And that neighborhood, when I was starting to hit like 9 or 10, I started to experience like bullies and like street violence, you know? And I remember the last year or two in that neighborhood, I would just like stay home. I was like a hermit. I did not want to interact with... Uh, some of the kids outside because they were they were they were violence, And uh, my mother was part of a homesteading program in which you actually physically help build a building, help gut it, assist in gutting it. And then you get a share. You get you you get a share, you know, and um, she did that for, she did that for like five, six long years. My mother did that for five, six long years before we finally moved into that that neighborhood, which is only like a 15 minute walk. But that neighborhood was different. It was a little more diverse. There was like, you know, so the Baruch uh, projects where I originally grew up was mostly black and Latino. And when we moved to uh, a different area, what they call Alphabet City, Manhattan, was a little more diverse. These were like more tenement housing, a lot of drugs and violence in our neighborhood, but it was definitely, I seen a lot, I was uh, introduced to more of a a punk rock culture, a more artsy East Village culture, if I may, you know? At at that age, I I became a little more outgoing and stuff, but all through that time, 10 to 15, 16, you know, mid-teens, I experienced a lot of, uh, you know, street violence. There was always drugs around. There was always drugs being sold, you know, used in front of me. You know, at a very young age, I was exposed to a lot of that stuff, but I wasn't like an unhappy kid. I was, you know, always joking around. I had a lot of friends, but I always felt the need to uh, protect myself or shelter myself from that sort of action. Like I did anything I could to avoid it. Right. And it wasn't always avoidable.
1: So, so at what point in time did you really realize uh, that, Hey, this is violence and this is drugs. You know, what, when did that really set in with you that this isn't good?
0: So at a very young age, I remember the the most traumatic experience I had with, like, with violence, the first, like, fight I had was, I had, like, a rival. Like, it was, like, a first or second grade. I remember feeling really good about that fight because I would win, right? And it was, like, it was energizing. But I remember this one time, shortly after that, I must have been, like, nine or ten years old, a group of kids, I was on my way home, and it was the first time I could recall that I went against my intuition. You know when you get that gut instinct of danger? and to avoid it, either walk across the street or, you know, do something. I didn't do that. What I did was I faced it head on. And I knew that I was going to a fire. It just felt like it was something wrong. And sure enough, like the kids beat me up, you know, they, they punched me in the face, you know. And that was traumatic. Like, I didn't want to deal with that. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know why someone would want to do that. And I felt like once that happened, I was a magnet to that sort of energy. And I was young. I was like nine or 10 years old. So as far as violence is concerned, I knew that was like, "Oh, that's a thing. There's kids out here who are nasty. As, as far as drugs are concerned, I seen drugs around the, being used recreationally, and I think I had more of a, uh, initially more of a, a glorified element to it, a fun element, a social element to it that, uh, that seemed intriguing, and it seemed like a lot of fuss. I was curious at a very young age.
1: Right. So at that at that first fight that you had, you you said it kind of made you a mag a magnet to that kind of controversy. Uh, from that point on, did you find yourself to be in more of those situations, or did you try to remove yourself from that construct and and be somewhere else when those kind of things were happening?
0: I, I did everything in my power to to get away from it. If I see kids that look like <laughs> like trouble, I will cross the street. I would pretend I was tying my shoelace, even though I was wearing sandals. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> anything I could do to like yeah. avoid it. You know? any,
1: any coping mechanism would do just oh, to yeah. get out of that situation. Of them, you know.
0: And I, and I did the same thing with school. I was, you know, I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't a, 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 a tough kid. I really knew how to fight or I had a, aggressive energy. So I wanted to avoid that. And the same thing with school. There was something I wasn't good at in school and I wasn't like a bad student early on. I read well and I enjoyed history and everything. But when it came to math, I did everything in my power to avoid that. I would pretend I was sick. I would, uh, you know, just everything. It would be extreme actually, just to get out of doing it.
1: Right. So you'd mentioned that that you grew up with your mom who was a single mom. Did you, do you know your father at all?
0: Yes. Uh, he lived in Florida and I would visit him as a young, as a young boy. I would fly out there by myself. Seven, six, seven years old. Go on a flight, and my memory of him is vague. You know, he would take me a few weeks or so in the summer, but he would leave me alone in the apartment while he hung out all day. Mm. And what he did all day was drink and hang out with his friends and drugs or whatever. So my memory of him at home was usually him being moody and just watching TV. Or when he came home at uh, home at night, you know, drunk from the, you know. From his outing, and then the, the memories that I, that I do have that were enjoyable was him taking me to. Um, he used to take me to cockfights, like rooster, mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and that's such a violent. Have you ever been to one? I've never been to one, but I've I've like seen them on YouTube. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they're
0: uh, they're pretty intense and they're nasty, you know. And but to this day, when I uh, when I hear about it, it there's a certain warmth that's brought to me with that violence because it attaches the bond that we had.
1: Right. It, isn't it amazing how our minds can attach to certain oddities that just bring back memories of, of things. Uh, right. It, it's just, it's, and, and and it's not always the good thing. You know, I remember I, I was, I was playing, uh, baseball. I was probably eight or nine years old, and we had this big baseball tournament coming up. And I grew up in a poor family, and this this afternoon we went to a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and this was back in the day where they had the big buffet. I don't I don't know if you know Do they have Kentucky Fried Chicken in New York? They do, they okay. do, but
0: it's not buffet. It's more like you order it, and you get it in the bucket or something like right, that. Not right, right.
1: So we were eating this this buffet meal, and this lady comes in and starts a fight with the manager, like a literal fist fight. And to this day, when I eat Kentucky Fried Chicken, I immediately uh, attach that to violence. Like it's this anxiety dwells up in me of being this little kid in a, in a booth thinking we're all going to die. You know, that's, wow. that's, that's kind of one of those things. So yeah. It's interesting
0: that you say that because I have something like that too, that's attached to a feel good food and it's the ice cream truck, the Mr. Softy truck. Mm-hmm. You know, the song that goes on? Yeah. The truck pulls up like a bell. Mm-hmm. When I hear that, that reminds me of summer days when everyone was out in the street And I always feel like violence is right around the corner.
1: Right. And
0: that ice cream truck was always playing when something bad went down.
1: Yeah. And so it gives you this sense of anxiety that something bad is about to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and even though as adults now, we, we know that we could kind of, well, I mean, you're a boxing instructor, you could handle yourself. Right. But you know, we have this kind of sense of security, but at the same time, it's like something bad is about to happen. It's it's weird and and magical how our brains work in that way. Absolutely. So moving into like uh, middle school, high school, what was life like then?
0: Middle middle school, high school, it was the same thing. I I I was popular amongst my my peers because I've always had a good sense of humor, a creative way of like expressing myself. So I think people took a liking towards me. But I've also I don't want to say bullying tactics, but like making fun of other people as a way to boost myself up. So when, you, when, you, when you're you young and you're able to contend verbally with what they call snaps, making fun of the other person for what their shoes they're wearing or whatever, you know, you're kind of propped up. So I got by with some of that stuff in middle school. That's when I was exposed to more organized, like smaller crews and gangs. So rather than being focused on studies, It was more like being, I was immersed into like the hip hop culture. I love music. I uh, I was just getting, really getting into girls. And, um, but I was also in a neighborhood where I knew there was a lot of different crews. There was a lot of different, and a lot of energy was spent trying to avoid confrontation with them. So I did everything, you know, I did, you know, I hung out with certain people. And I just felt like there's so much energy was put into that. And there's a lot of energy put into, you know, uh, upholding a certain image, you know. And I was still myself for the most part, but a lot of time was spent trying to uh, put on a certain uh, look and uh, exterior to avoid uh, clashing with some of these guys. And I even joined, it wasn't a gang per se, but it was an organization called Azulu Nation. And they were originally founded by hip hop pioneers. But in a lot of ways, people may consider them a gang because they, you know, there were groups of guys who used to meet bi weekly or weekly. And we used to meet in the park and study the lessons. You know, the lessons would be every letter in the alphabet had a meaning. And a lot of these guys in the, in, the, in the nation were violent. And they did like, but there was also a very positive side. They would encourage, reading, they would encourage you to read certain books. But I like that power. We wore this flag and that flag meant that you, you know, you weren't to be messed with.
1: And that, that felt good. That felt real good. Do you think you were able to, as you put it, snap back to these kids because you knew that you had backup if you needed it? Or was it more just a, a comedic way of trying to make friends?
0: I think it was more of a comedic way to make friends because I wasn't relentless. I didn't do it. I didn't do it to everybody. You know, I did it, you know, when provoked and I was just good at doing it. So I was creative with breaking down, you know, their characteristics or something that they did, or, you know, a physical or, you know, flaw or something. And, and I made it funny, but I don't think I, I was relentless to the point where I was like a bully with it, but it was, it was definitely a, a skill.
1: Do you think it was a coping skill to try to make friends and try to feel included?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Once I seen the power of being able to have people on my side laughing, and, you know, and being a part of like that meant that meant they weren't laughing at me. You know, it was like so. So I would do that to teachers that would allow me to get away with it. I would, uh, you know, so I was a pain in the ass in middle school.
1: You know, I was a real. I think we all were to some degree. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. So so being included in this, uh, I don't really want to call it a gang. Maybe a friendship circle would be. Yeah, be better it wasn't, for-
0: if, you know, it wasn't a gang per se, like, a, you know, I I mean some may consider it a gang, but it was more of a friendship circle. Well, you're talking about the Zulu Nation, mm-hmm. what I said earlier. Right. Yeah, because I don't know, I, th- I think when you think of gangs, I've never seen any of these guys pull out a weapon. They didn't initiate people in by beating them up or when you wanted to leave, they didn't you know you didn't get beat up to get out. So it wasn't like that.
1: Right. So it was more of a kind of a big brother type organization. Yeah. Of where you knew that people had your back even to a, a fault, if you will. Uh, if it came to that uh, but there was also encouragement to be educated uh within right. this this thing so how did that how did that mold you as a young person to see that there were people like you that that didn't want the violence but if it came to that would would back you up uh, but then really did care about you as an individual and in your learning it went
0: along with my mother's teachings right my mother was a uh, you know, always a fighter in her own right, but she, but and she wasn't a traditional, uh traditionalist like, oh, you have to, um, I mean, she encouraged schooling, but she always encouraged reading. She said, as long as you have your books and you're learning about the world, you're going to be rich with knowledge and that you'll be able to navigate throughout the world. She always implemented, at a very young age, I remember, you know, she always read and she always encouraged that, you know, that I read you know, buy me books and it'd be like a year or two before I would pick up the book. But I always eventually read the books that she got me that those lessons that were planted early on for my mom, they kind of the, the, the group, the organization reinstated that a little bit, like always read, you know, we're going to have knowledge of self and then so forth. So it's familiar to me.
1: Right. Because if you can read, then you can learn. And if you learn, you can do anything. Right. It's kind of, uh, funny though, how that is kind of tilted now to where kids are. If I can watch it on YouTube, I can learn. And if I can learn, I can do. And I think that's because kids nowadays are such so much more visual than, than being able to sit down and read something. So moving into, uh, uh I think what you said, seventh grade on, you were not a very good student. So, no. so what happened there that kind of made that change?
0: I, w- I was way behind in math. So you got to pass all the subjects to move on. So I did everything in my power to cheat and get the grades or whatever. And I made it to eighth grade and then eighth grade. I barely made it to ninth. How I made it to ninth is beyond me. I think they were just, they had too many students. They couldn't leave anyone back. And then I made it to ninth. And then I went to high school and, like, I really didn't graduate junior high school. Like, I remember it was, like, a situation where it's, like, you're, you know, you have way too many pink slips. You do what you want here, but we need to, like, move on. We're need to. we not going to leave you back because the school is overcrowded. It was something along those lines. I remember feeling very upset about it and feeling like a black sheep. While everyone celebrated, junior, going, graduated from junior high school, I remember showing up to meet my friend. They were in their cap and gown. They were going to McDonald's or, you know, a BBK. And I remember wearing a hat to the side and kind of embracing that, being the outcast. And I remember being very negative that day with their accomplishments, you know, they're celebrating their accomplishment. And I remember being very moody and negative. I do remember that vividly.
1: So do you feel like you were just kind of pushed through instead of earning it? Absolutely. Right.
0: There's no doubt about it. I was kind of pushed through. And that got, that, that, that got progressively worse, my you know schooling. Like this junior high school was just, I mean, and then high school was a joke. Like I just hung out all the time. And, um, you know, once again, I kept off my studies. I, I always immersed myself in reading books that I enjoyed. And it would be everything from the Cuban revolutionary to books on animals to, you know, uh, black history, all that stuff. I always read and I enjoyed writing as
1: well. So it was always a nonfiction type genre that you stuck right, in.
0: Right. I mean, I've read, a, I've, I've, you know, I read a few Stephen King and uh, Lord of the Rings stuff. And I enjoyed those for the most part, but one and done. right? Mm-hmm. I never went through the whole series, but I've always enjoyed, you know, figures like Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, the Dalai Lama, you know, Bob, uh, Bobby, Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers, Huey Newton. All that stuff really caught my attention.
1: Mm-hmm. So, within reading that history and, and and nonfictional stuff, do you feel like that gave you a different viewpoint of the world?
0: Absolutely, I felt like what we were—I uh, was fed initially what was given to me during my everyday life. I understood from a deeper perspective, from a different lens. No doubt. No doubt about it. I saw things from a different angle. I internalized people's feelings on a different level and I, and I really gained empathy and, uh, and, and curiosity really. And, and, you know, enthusiasm for living.
1: Right. So so in, in reading all of this, this history, uh, what was the one thing that really kind of stuck out to you as some of the greatest, most accomplished things that that you read?
0: Well, one thing that uh, I would say, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff, but one thing that when you asked me that question, what pops out? Mm -hmm. uh, I remember Che Guevara um, sacrificing uh, the life that was kind of laid out before him. He was a doctor and he could have been a very successful doctor in Argentina. But when he finished his studies, he decided to get a motorbike with his friend and cruised down South America with his skills of a doctor and help tend and mend pe- to people who were ill. And he did that for free. And I always thought that was a, that was a, a beautiful selfless, selfless act.
1: Yeah. So did that ever inspire you to, to do something great with your life?
0: I don't know if that, it, it inspired me to read more on that and always, uh, I don't know, I guess, put the energy into always remaining generous and treating people as equals and never having a feeling like uh, you're inferior to me. Like, you know, I've always practiced trying to keep a level head and like not to have an ego about things. that It could could kind of blind you.
1: Absolutely. So in in moving into uh, graduation of high school, Did you have dreams of going on to college or were you just, okay, I'm done with education?
0: Yeah, I never had any uh, dreams or or, or thoughts of going to college. I've always enjoyed working. So at a very young age, I always worked. And just rewinding back to like my uh, junior high school days, I met a guy, an antique salesman, but he was a hustler. So he was, you know, well-traveled and he would pick up antiques. He had an eye for it. And He would sell it, and he was so charismatic. He was so um, engaging. He would put on music in his little shop, and he would have all the neighborhood kids around. There. He had a pit bull that like ran up and down the block, and he would give us five dollars to, uh, to give out a stack of flyers. But the way he was able to communicate with anybody, whether it be a street dude, to you know a nine to fiver, to a finance person, to a blue collar worker, I was always impressed by that he had the gift to gab and he he was so passionate about his furniture mm-hmm. right and he spoke about it like it was the last piece and that you needed that piece so i like that salesmanship and it was showmanship he, he was really performing it and he always had some good music playing in the back and so he you know and he's still alive and i would love to eventually have him as a guest on my podcast he was always um Someone who stuck with me because he was like a hard worker, sweating all the time, pushing the furniture. So that's one person who was outside of my family that worked hard. My mother was a hard worker, too. She had two or three jobs at a time. The fact that she got us out the project and she physically helped build and restore this building for six long years to own this apartment, that's a display of hard work. Absolutely. And, and commitment. And she did that for us. She did that for, you know, for us. You know, and there's, and it there was a lot of sacrifice. And there was a lot of times that me and my sister were at home alone, you know. But my, I saw that my mother always worked hard. She was diligent and she walked, she, she walked even at the the, the lowest places where her head, her head held high, always very proud.
1: Thinking about the sacrifice that, that your mother made there, can you put into words how that, that made you feel that she sacrificed all of that for you and your sister?
0: I think it's a beautiful thing. And it's uh, and I hope that I, I represent that as a parent as well to my daughter. I, you know, when it when it, when it comes to sacrifice, I don't want to do it with that uh with the attitude or even the face of like I sacrifice of that energy. It's like, oh no, this is what I want to do. It's a sacrifice, but it's like this is what my heart and spirit wants me to do. Right. It, it doesn't come from a place like, oh, I sacrifice for you. It doesn't feel like that. I'm so full of love. And and this openness that's like, oh, this is what I want to do. And if certain things I have to put aside, those things are trivial compared to the bigger picture. And that's, you know, my daughter, that's my wife, that's the things I love, you know. So it doesn't really seem like a sacrifice, but we all sacrifice.
1: Absolutely. So whenever anybody says I sacrificed for you or I did this for you, then you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they didn't do it for you. They did it for them so that they could feel good about what they have done. Right. Um, So, yeah, we've, but it's so easy sometimes to slip into that mindset, especially when we feel like uh, somebody's betrayed us in, in what we have done. Right. So getting, getting out of school into being a young person, um, I believe you said you had some substance abuse problems. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: My daughter's just walking by grabbing her stuff. You're almost done?
1: Yeah. <laughs> She's fine. Does she, want to, does she want to make a guest appearance? Well, yeah. Charlie, why don't you say hello
0: to Dr. B? Hi. Hi.
1: Did you hear her? I heard her.
0: <laughs> Give her a little wave. Come over here real quick. This is my beautiful daughter, Charlie.
1: Oh, she is beautiful. Hi, Charlie. Hi. I love you, baby. It's always good to have our kids around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, at the so when the,
0: the first I, I, I've seen drugs being used at a at a very young age. So my, you know, weed and drinking, age six, seven. You know, casually amongst family members, always. You know, and I was always curious about it. The first time I saw cocaine, I was visiting my father, and I might have seen it before, but the one that, that sticks to me and he was um, I, walk, I was watching the movie, Howard the Duck. Remember that movie?
1: I do, <laughs> I do. That's a
0: silly movie. And I was singing the theme song, Howard the Duck, and I run to the kitchen with that six-year-old enthusiasm, right? And I see my father holding a key to his friend's nose. Mm. And I stopped dead in my tracks. My father said, go to the room. So I go to the room, and that was it, you know? But I remember one thing that stuck with me, that the following morning, I woke up really early, And I took my finger and I wiped it across the counter and I put it to my teeth. I was like six, seven years old. That says something. I don't think that was the first. I don't think I came up with that. I think I've seen that before, probably many times over. Sure. You know, but that was the one time I remember that. Like, what inspired me to do that? How did I know to do that? What inspired that sparked that curiosity? So something tells me that either I was too young or I blocked certain things out, but that was the first memory of doing
1: that, but uh I probably seen it done over and over. So what did what effect did it have on you when you rubbed it on your teeth? Do you remember Well, there was nothing there. Oh okay. but I was,
0: I was I was searching for it.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm thinking at six years old if if you actually got some cocaine in your mouth, there's no telling what kind of animations could have taken place. Right. So when was the first time that you remember doing cocaine?
0: Oh, I remember vividly. I was, uh, I believe, 17, 18 years old. And I was with a, a kid I used to go to, uh, I was in grammar school with. He he was uh, a kid that had troubles. He was, um, he was a very charismatic kid. He was well-liked, but he was um, he was adopted. And I, I, and I never felt like he felt like he belonged to his family. I remember he... Um, very, very curious when it came to those things. He he was always around that energy. So one time, so he he had mentioned that he had some, and we were at you know in a in a in a building in a stairway, and I don't when I did that, man. It, it just felt so good to express myself. Like it, it came out so fluidly, you know. But I remember also feeling as if. I was just uh, talking a lot about my problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was just like pouring out. And so was he. And so we were just sitting in a stairway of some strange building. And, and it was,
1: that, that was it. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. And, and how you said you were 16, 17 years old.
0: I was like 16, 17
1: years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, but before that, I had already
0: started drinking. I was drinking already. I was smoking weed already.
1: Was it, really a temptation or does was it just, hey, it's here, let's try this?
0: Oh, no, I was super curious. If anything, I was probably the one I was pushing mm. for it more. Gotcha. I, I I thought it was such a – I was so fascinated by it. I was super curious
1: about it. I wanted to do it. No one would twist my arm. I definitely wanted to do it. Do you, do you remember what made you so curious about about doing it? I, I don't. I don't. I
0: did, I just think the fact – I mean, it could have been the certain music I was listening to, it could have been the fact that I've seen a f- f- uh, family or, you know, or, or people around me using it. I know it just, it just had this allure about it.
1: Sure. So from that point on, did it become a, a regular thing?
0: You know, it, it didn't become a regular thing, but I, 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 for years I would drink weekly and that was for the years, you know, like a lot of people do. Right. And I never considered it a problem. Fast forward to my mid-20s, when I started stand-up, everything became was more, because it was socially accepted in that world. That's when it became, uh, it felt uncontrollable. But I guess that, that those bad habits were cultivated within that 10-year span, right? You think 16 to 26, it built it up steadily, and then it became unmanageable. Sure. I couldn't,
1: you know. So did you find yourself doing it within the realm of comedy socially or did you get to a point of where you had to have it in order to do a show or you had to have it in order to try to, uh, even though cocaine's a stimulant to try to calm down after a show?
0: That, that's a very good question. It was a, a bit of all of the above. So before uh, it, uh, originally, uh, initially it became something to just do after a few drinks, then it became something to do after shows, almost every time after shows and anytime I did it before shows, a big roll of the dice. Sometimes I'd be so like, that I didn't want to get on stage or, you know, but it, 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 then it got to a point where it was, I was uh, doing it and not um, even enjoying myself anymore. I would do it and just become very, I would almost be, want to be alone. Yeah. Like, like You know, what became like something, what started off as something very social became I withdrew. I withdrew, like withdrew
1: from people. Right, which is not uncommon because when one uses uh, such a drug, they become they kind of get diarrhea of the mouth. I guess is the best way to say. And and then they realize I have told all of this stuff to to people, and and I don't want everybody to know about this. And so you kind of ostracize yourself from everybody around, or it's because your problems become more real yeah, and you're able to no longer compartmentalize all these problems. And so it, it leads then to further depression.
0: Absolutely. It got, it got to the point where I would use and immediately start talking about quitting. So the whole high was spent, you know, for hours on how I'm going to stop. And then, and I would speak about it so well and passionately, like I, I would articulate how I was going to do it. I had it all figured out all while still, you know, doing the drug, which is wild, you know, if you think about it. And I think um, when you're knowledgeable about the um, the negative of doing that such drugs, and how, the toll it, it, it has on your physical and mental health, but then you continue to use it, it could drive you nuts. Because, like, why do I keep on doing this? And it becomes a very sad, lonely place where you're frustrated, and it might, th- those feelings might inspire you to get clean for like six days, but then you can't go seven, you know? Then you start trying to rationalize um, why you're doing it, and, and you trick yourself. You try to trick yourself, say, telling yourself, oh, I'll just do it once a week, or but I can't do that because I'm hungover before it. I'll do it once a month. I told myself, I'll just do it once a month. That's 12 times a year. Mm-hmm. That never worked, you know? Or I would, you know, or I would say, um, unless I have a, if I always have to have a $1,000 in my, my bank account to do it. Like, these ridiculous, you know? And, and and when I got clean, I realized the amount of time I spent doing and recovering was phenomenal. You know, and I wasn't even a guy who was doing it every day. But, like, you know, it was enough where I added up the hours. And you think about, like, if I, if I did a show at 8 p.m. and I was done by 10 and I hung out from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., 10 to 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, that's seven hours of hanging out. And then another six hours recovering, you know, it's damn near like 12 hours. And that one stint you add that times three, that's a part-time job. It's like 30 plus hours of committing reserving for that. And those are physical hours, but not even the mental toll that takes on you.
1: Right. And the lack of sleep. Right. You know, all of that, all of that kind of culminates into a mental health nightmare. Right. So tell me about the first time that, you stepped on stage to do comedy and you really felt like you were in your element.
0: So the first time I ever did it, you know, I went to like a, uh, it was a, a comedy school where it's like, you go weekly with your peers and you perform five minutes. And then there's a graduation show 10 weeks in or six weeks in or whatever. And that first show was phenomenal. It was out. Caroline's on Broadway. I was 25, 26 years old. I was with a girlfriend I'd been for, for a year and a half. And my friends and family were there. And um, I had a five-minute set. It was phenomenal. And I felt like so good. I felt so alive. I felt so pure. And I was addicted to stand-up. I would do it all the freaking time. You know, I would go out to the open mics, do it six, seven times a night, open mics. But that, I fell in love with stand-up that I, I, I started to fall out. Of love with the girls I was with, and there was a split. I, I mean, I started stand up, and there was definitely a split. So I think I was mad at stand up. Like in retrospect, I look back at stand up. I was like, damn, I gave up a lot to try to live this life. You know, I remember, you know, I, I hurt this girl's feelings. I really got to drinking and doing drugs a lot more, and uh, there wasn't a huge payback. I mean, in retrospect, I can see what what I what I gained, but I've also I can also see what it allowed and what it didn't say no to because it was in that element you're always in a bar you're, you're hanging out with people who do it they're night owls you know and so forth
1: so did your girlfriend ever say are you dating me or are you dating comedy
0: yeah it was all it was yeah absolutely you know and it got to the point i felt so out of that that you know it was comedy and then for years you know this being single dating different people and and all while using, and, you know, it was the same scenario, you know, it was a toxic relationship, a lot of drinking going on. Usually the person drank a lot.
1: And so it just kind of turns into this vicious cycle Right. of when is it going to end? Right. So what was your point in time where you said, okay, enough is enough. I have to quit.
0: Once I had my daughter, so my daughter is nine years old now. Once I had her, I couldn't stand myself at that point. I was at a low, I, you know. I did, I, I, physically could not stand myself. I was, uh, and there's, you know, there, there, I'm sure there's many moments, but there was this one time I was hungover and she was already born. And I woke up with a nasty hangover. It was like, the sun was piercing through the blinds. I'm in a studio apartment with my now wife, we were living in the studio apartment at the time. And, I, and, my, and my daughter was crying, my, and I, my wife now, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend at the time, she knew I was really hungover, and she said, you deal with this. And my daughter was crying, I looked, know, I didn't have to go far, we're in a studio apartment. <laughs> I looked to my right, and the crib is there, and I remember looking through the bars and seeing my daughter crying, and I remember really feeling I didn't want to deal with it. I, I did not want to have, have this going on in my life. And that was scary to me, that I felt so, like, resentful. And that—that's one thing that stuck out in me. I was like, how dare I partake in this and not want to do any of the welfare? I didn't want to do. I didn't want deal with it, and that scared me because it was such a strong feeling that um, I was like, if I keep up this way, I'm gonna end up walking away from this or doing something worse. Like, it was so heavy. And even after that, doctor, I will tell you, man, I went to, to the outpatient and I went back, and it was zigzag. It wasn't like, oh, that was the one time. It was like six times over in different ways. And it's not easy, you know, to get help, you gotta want it, you gotta like really want to get help. And it's not easy to get help. Mm -hmm. Like you have to really figure it out on your own. Like, you know, there's people who will assist you, but you gotta really want it because it's not like anyone's there like, oh, you're here to get sober. Like it's not like that. You're a fucking adult. You know, it's it's a weird thing, and I and I didn't know where to go really. I was trying to do it quietly, and I was going to, you know, I was making the wrong turn. I was going to like heroin clinics. I was like, oh, this is not like <laughs> my my wave. And people were nasty, man. I didn't, you know, I had the, my insurance was minimum, like it was the, you know, so a lot of people were turning me down. What the help that was available to me was, was uh, not 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 plentiful. For and I finally found a place that I tried. Three times over, and I finally got it the third time. But I, man, I, you know, props to that place. They, it was an outpatient thing. I went to, first, I started going to four meetings a week, then three meetings, and it dwindled down. You had a counselor, you would you do network meetings and, you know, group meetings, excuse me. And uh, I slowly started to get it. But it took like a year for my confidence to come back and to get a rhythm. But then I became addicted to like working out again. I always worked out throughout this too. But I remember working out to the point where I would pee blood. Like I was staying in the gym so long. So it was like extreme. You know, I didn't want to talk to anybody. It was really hard to do stand up at that time. I would go to shows and hide in the green room. Everything Eventually everything, the, the, the chemicals like balanced out. I'm more fluid now. But right. it took like about a year.
1: So when people come to me and they say, how can I help my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, whoever to quit doing whatever they're addicted to? My answer is you can't because they have to want to right. in order for it to work. And because it's not easy, it's, it's, it's work. It, it is an everyday struggle. And I'm sure that even now it's a struggle for you that there are times and temptations where you think, well, I could make it all go away, but I would lose my sobriety. And you have to right. kind of weigh that. How long have you been sober now? I got a whole constant days, but it's been over eight years. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. So now you, you said you kind of moved into working out and, and it's interesting where people who specifically are on cocaine typically turn to working out or, um, uh, CrossFit or, uh, bicycling or running, you know, all of that pent up energy that they have, they need to get out in another outlet and that's all well and good, but there can come a point like where you said you were urinating blood that it's too much.
0: Yeah. So that was a good beginning and you know, and I really, I couldn't sustain that, but yeah, all those things helped me keep on the up and up. And it's not like I do that. Like when I run, when I box, when I work out, it's not like I got to do this cause I'm running away. From it. It's just, been, it's, it's part of my lifestyle now. Absolutely. So, you know it doesn't feel extreme it, it never it never becomes unmanageable I, i'm never like hurting myself so it's at a place where i'm like oh yeah this is this part of my life now but in the beginning it felt like that
1: right it felt very extreme so you're a boxing instructor as well correct so you know the old quote everybody has a plan until they get hit right did it seem like in your growing up that you had a plan until you hit rock bottom absolutely so what would you say to those people who feel like they've got it all figured out and, but they're just drowning? I really don't. I mean, I, I, I believe to anyone who feels like they're drowning,
0: there's always a way out. You know, there's always an option. And I, I'm a firm believer in that, but you have to want it. You know, it's one thing I think of knowing that what you're doing is wrong, but you gotta have to want, I'm a firm believer in that. Like no one could twist your arm and make you get sober or lead, lead a, a healthier, better life. I wanted it. There's no doubt about it. And with me wanting it, I still failed like many times over. But I wanted it. I couldn't be denied. I became almost like addicted to being sober. I had like a spiritual awakening. I was able to appreciate the colors that were right before my eyes. I was able to appreciate listening. I was able to appreciate what what people may think as mundane. You know, I was able to just appreciate smell and taste and. And, and just everything that's free, you know, and nothing required like, oh, the exchange for money for this. Like, but for a long time, I, that's the way I operated. But I think I always had that in me. I just think that it was covered with, there was clutter. There was, it was just a mess. But I felt like I always had that in me. I don't think it was that hard to uncover for me because I felt like I always had that somewhere. I didn't, it wasn't something that I made up. I think it was always in me. In me. And then I was able to reveal it again. And what I mean by that is my ability to like love and, and be generous with my time and not be so damn selfish. But when I was, and I, and there was a time I was very confident, but when I started using drugs and drinking, I became selfish. I became it robbed me of my self-esteem. And it's ironic, right? Because I did a lot of this stuff because I thought it would give me confidence and self-esteem, but it did the exact opposite. Absolutely. And, you know, so once that stuff started to come back, it became very powerful. I was like, Oh, I can look at people in the eyes when I'm talking to them. I can, When I'm faced with some sort of adversity, it doesn't have to turn into this huge controversy. If someone said no, it was no, and that was it. I move on. So it gave me peace of mind. It gave me peace of mind. And that's like nothing is more valuable than that. Being able to deal with a, a problem and move on. Not able to internalize what you think someone else may be thinking. I used to harp on things like what uh, someone else may be thinking and spend countless hours on that, like made up things. Now i just move on. You know, I do everything to the best of my ability and I'm not exempt. I'm going to make mistakes. But one thing I say, I have the conferences move on.
1: Yeah. Uh, One thing that, that I'm often quoted to say is that while everybody has an opinion, you're the only one that gets a vote. Right. When it comes to you.
0: I, yeah. I mean, given the power to that is the most violent thing you could do to yourself.
1: And if you give people the power to validate what you say, you're also giving them the power to devalue everything you do. Right. And, and we give that power to people and don't even realize we've given it to them. Right. And then we find ourselves in the corner going, well, I wonder what they meant by that. Or I wonder what they think about this. And then we become our worst advocate to, to try to be mentally healthy because we're always worried about what people around us are thinking or doing. Right. What is their agenda? What did they mean by that? And instead of just going and asking them or letting it just fly off of us, we sit there and we just let it absorb us. You know, one thing that I can appreciate that you said was that while you wanted to quit, that you still failed three times or two times.
0: Yeah, maybe even more.
1: So a lot of times we don't mention that relapse is a part of recovery. It's, it's just normal. And so I would encourage those that may be listening that are trying to get sober just to know that failure is not final. And uh, the acronym for fail, I believe, is first attempt in learning. So it's, 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 it's not final. So tell me about your, uh, what, what do you enjoy the most about being a boxing instructor? Because I can't imagine anything being enjoyable about getting punched in the face or the gut or anything of that nature.
0: So one thing, and this all goes with, um, you know, sobriety, like I've always boxed and I've always, you know, I, I always was like, I, I was in and out the gym, but once I, once I, and I did that while getting high, you know, I was I remember going to the gym and, you know, but I was selling myself, I was maybe 40% of my true potential, of the work I put in, how much, uh, what I was willing to put in, and it wasn't like I was, Um, first of all, I think to be, a, a, let me just explain that there's a difference between being a competitive boxer and this training, and I did both, right? I uh, I always, I, I, I trained for years, you know, I, I, I was sparring and everything but I don't know if I ever had the confidence to really compete. But once I, um, I got sober and I really had a good grasp, the threshold for pain, <laughs> both mentally and physically, I was like, oh, I can handle this. And I competed after that and won. Same thing with running. I would tell myself, I can only do five miles. Then I ran a marathon. You know, like, you know, it's, it's funny how we cap off the limits of what we could do. You know, and that's influenced by the, by other people. You know, uh, I, you know, if I think about it, it doesn't take me too long to people I love who always, are, uh, Oh, I can't do that. It's too much. I've heard that, you know, but you can't cap off. you you'll be surprised with, but it requires work. Like it doesn't just saying it doesn't do it. And I, that's, what I feel like we live in a society where like, Oh yeah, if I say it enough, no, you got to like do it and doing it is very, it's extremely uncomfortable and it's a no, and it's a lonely place because no one cares about you do when you're done with it oh congratulations and that's that's short-lived right but i could always tap in to that reserve and that all applies to everything else i'm doing when i cut my finger off on a table sore years ago i cut like i, I remember the physical torment and, and and mental anguish i went through and i was like oh if i can deal with that sort of Pain, I could do stand up and deal with that rejection. When I got off a drug and stopped drinking, I was like, oh, if I could deal with that pain, I could do boxing and run a marathon. So it just keeps on overlapping. They're all teachings.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's all, you know, the metaphor.
1: A goal without a plan is just a dream.
0: Right. And the thing is, I wasn't raised on, you know, I, I have friends who have parents, and I, nothing does not knock on my mom, but. Um, I was just never. I wasn't raised that way. Like you gotta have goals. It was never like that. It was you know. It was never like that. It was uh, it was very uh. I, we had a lot of liberties, you know. Uh, but I, I think what I try to instill my daughter is like there have to be goals. Like, you have to write things out. And now I practice that. I have a whiteboard, and sometimes it's just daily, doctor. I, I'll tell you, man. Sometimes it's like today is a five-mile run. I'm reading, writing. I'm going to the Trader Joe's just so I'm held accountable, and I, and I can check them off throughout the. It's so satisfying because if not, the way my mind works, I'm not saying everyone's like this. I feel like I'm all over the place. I feel like I'm on my phone for five minutes. You know, I'm I'm on, I'm on the computer, and then my day feels chaotic. I write it out, and it's what people like, Why did you put folding your clothes on the whiteboard? Because it needed to be done, and now it's done. Some of the goals are bigger. Sometimes like with stand up, oh, I gotta come up with five new mat- minutes of material. But I'm always just trying to build on those blocks and trying to turn them into habits and see what works for me and and push forward from there.
1: I love it. I love it. So first of all, I wanna say I love your shirt. It says drink some coffee, put on some gangster rap and handle it. <laughs> uh, I mean, that could be your life mantra there. But what is one thing that you would say to anybody listening to the podcast today that that you is your message that you want them to know?
0: That's a, a loaded question. I think I have a, a an appropriate answer for it. I think one thing that that really pops out is that you matter. You're the most important thing. Sometimes we, oh my, I can't do that because of my kids. I can't do that because I got a job. No, whatever you got to do for you to get right is the most important thing. It's the most important thing. I know there's, you know, there's too many battles. You know, you don't have to look too far to see some sort of social conflict you want to engage in. Or maybe it's something even closer to home, right? Your child, your wife, your husband, your mother, your father. But you're, if you're unable to get your mind and body right before you engage in those battles or assist somebody with their problems... You're not going to get very far. You have to make sure you're prepared. And what I mean by that is that you've done the work to be the best version of yourself. And that's constantly, you're constantly evolving. You're constantly going to be working on that. But you have to have a good grasp of who you are and how you move forward. You got to, because if you do it and there's a something let's say for example we'll use like you know like substance abuse going on in your life and you're not addressing that every other battle is not going to be done with the, you know you're not going to be able to do it with the same power enthusiasm or longevity and that's the inevitable there's no way around it so you got to put in the work to make sure you're right you matter most you matter most and then from then on Cause this is something that we trick ourselves into telling ourselves like oh I can't I can't do that for myself because I need to help someone else that's a cop-out you just don't want to address that so stop bullshitting and that's how manipulative and sly we, we are with ourselves because that's oh that's a beautiful thing to say it's like the whole thing I, I got to sacrifice my health or my well-being because I got to do this for somebody else. no you matter like that's first and foremost and if you don't that means you're not putting yourself first and you don't really want to address the issues at hand. And that's an uncomfortable place. When I first got sober, what I realized is like, oh, sober is one thing. Now I got I to gotta peel the layers back to like, why was I doing that? And that's happened to the ugly things I didn't really want to admit. I didn't want to admit that I was scared, that I was insecure, that, you know, that I wasn't confident in certain areas. But with vulnerability, there's strength because you're revealing me, you're putting it out there.
1: So, you you could sum it up in saying that you can't help someone else be healthy if you're not healthy.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, thank you for listening to Doc Talks Today. I'm Doc Brian. As we go into Doc Talks DX, the diagnosis, a part of this, you can find that on Patreon, where we talk about the diagnosis and what we actually think is going on with our guests and discuss that diagnosis and potential treatment and how we would bring all this together to help them cope. Uh, Sergio, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today, and and you'll be uh, a guest on the second part of the podcast to discuss your diagnosis. Sergio, tell us where we can find you.
0: All social media pa- uh, platforms at Sergio Chicone. That's S E R G I O C H I C O N, as in Nancy. Chacon.
1: Sergio Chicone. Sergio Chicone. Yeah. Sergio, man, I've just butchered your name today. No, okay. and, you before, <laughs> and before we even started, I said, let me tell me how you say your name. Uh, but anyway, we, we'll get, we'll get it right. Eventually. Of course you can find me at the on Instagram, the There's a link at the bottom of my website for all of my social media, feel free to follow us there. And we look forward to having you with us next time. Be sure to check out the second part of this episode. Doc talks of DX on Patreon and of course, Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. Again, thank you for listening to us today, Sergio. It was a, a pleasure to have you with us, and we're looking forward to to being on Doc Talks DX with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.